A reading from Acts. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to many by convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the time or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and while they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. I'm reading from Ephesians. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the all, all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give you thanks for all as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelations as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? For us who believe, according to the working of his great power, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power of dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all these things under his feet, and has made him the head over all things for this church, for which his body, the fullness of him who fills all, all fills in. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Jesus said to his disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised, so stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. The Gospel of the Lord. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Please be seated. 
But welcome to our last Sunday in Easter, where we celebrate a really interesting festal day. This is called the Feast of the Ascension. I first learned about it, you know, the tradition I grew up in, we didn't have feast days. We had potlucks. Um, (laughs) Those were really feast days. Uh, The first time I learned about feast days was when I was living in Germany. And in Germany, this is called Himmelfahrt, which means the trip to heaven. And um, it was a really big feast day, so all the stores and the groceries were closed and nobody told us. So this was our introduction to Christian feasting was actually fasting (laughs) because there was nothing to eat. This is an interesting day, you know, because particularly in a parish like this with our NASA heritage, we understand that the universe is really not three tiers. So we kind of have to adopt this mindset just for a second to understand the symbolism of what's going on here. The ancient folks, and and I'd say even 150 years ago, this was pretty pretty, um, um, descriptive of how the rest of the world really related to this, The idea was, of course, that heaven is up, and that's where God is, and down below is where, well, at least dead things are, if not bad things, and in the middle we find ourselves, right? Somewhere between the upper world and the underworld, such is life. Now, at the time of Jesus, there really wasn't this understanding of an excruciating hell where things are tortured, but there was an understanding that if you dug down underground enough, you would find the place in Greek that's called Hades or Tartarus. In Hebrew, it's called Sheol. It's the place of the dead. So it's where all dead people go when they die, and it's really dark there. And this is really important because if you think about what happened at Christmas, there's the incarnation where Christ being God comes down from heaven to earth. God takes on flesh. That's that big word, incarnation and moves and functions and breathes with human limitations. Jesus has acne on prom because we all had that. (laughs) Jesus is really worried about whatever you were worried about. He skins his knee. He misses his mother. People called him names, and it hurt his feelings. He does that for 30 years, and then he does really the ultimate human thing, I suppose, the thing that occupies a lot of our time and worry. He dies. And on Saturday, particularly in the earliest church, this is called Holy Saturday, the day between Good Friday and Easter, Jesus descends once again. He descends, think about it in the creed, we say he descended to the dead, right? But in the Apostles' Creed, do you know where he descends? He descended into, into hell. So think about this. Jesus descends from heaven to earth, and then he descends once again to the place under the earth. So far, God has invested God's presence in all three tiers of the universe. And on Easter is when God's investment actually starts to change the universe. So not only is God present there, but on Easter, Jesus comes back up from the place of the dead, comes out of hell. In fact, maybe you've heard before the legend of the harrowing of hell. This is in the Orthodox tradition when Jesus breaks the gates of hell open and says to everybody there, come on out, please. If you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, Jesus continues to do this, and people stay in hell of their own volition, 
but God actively invites people out, out of hells that are all too real in this world and the hells after we die. It's a fascinating book. If if you have not read it, I'd commend it to your summer reading list. It's about 90 pages, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Really fantastic book. So Jesus has harrowed hell, and he's risen back up to tier two, the one we live on. And, of course, you realize the disciples don't recognize him anymore. That's what we've talked about for 40 days. Martha thinks he's the gardener. Peter doesn't know who he is. Their eyes are opened after a bit, after he helps them to see who he is. But the difference between... Uh, the historical Jesus and the resurrected Jesus is sort of like the difference between one of these classical icons and one of these contemporary ones. They look really different, don't they? <laughs> Sometimes you might even say, I don't see Jesus in that contemporary work. That's how the disciples dealt with the resurrection. And now today, Jesus is making the system complete. You see, he's been with the disciples for 40 days, and now he takes his wounded, permanently wounded body. This experience of God becoming enfleshed, and he brings it back up to heaven. Now, one way to hear this is, oh, Jesus has abandoned us, so Jesus isn't talking to us anymore. It's all the Holy Spirit now. That is one way of thinking, but I don't think that's what the story is trying to tell us. Instead, I think the story is trying to tell us that God has not only filled every tier of the universe. Think about those tiers. There's earth, which is somewhere between heaven and death. <laughs> Many of us are very familiar with that way of thinking. And then there's death itself. God's presence has gone into places where we say God's presence cannot go. And not only has it gone there, it has invited everybody out so that that place can be vacant. And now, having come back to earth, wounds and all, Jesus returns that human body up into heaven. And you know, there's this early writer called Athanasius. If you ever get really bored, especially when the art's gone, and you want to read a long, long, long theological statement, you can flip to the back of your prayer book and read the Athanasian Creed. If you thought the Nicene Creed was long, friends, <laughs> this is like five pages in eight-point font. It'll really put you right out, the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius is the one who defended the Nicene Creed uh, most notoriously, and he made this statement that God became a human so that humans could become like God. That is, God adopted this human body, died as we do, went to those places where we feel God would never follow us, would never dare to chase us, those places called death and Tartarus and Hades and hell, and then God took all that back up into heaven. That sounds like a weird thing. This is the kind of thing that uh, theologians do. If you ever wonder what people do in seminary, they sit around and pontificate on these sorts of things. And if you do it long enough and use enough vocabulary, you might get a PhD one day. And, and, then, and then you can write tomes about this. And, and the kernel of it's quite sweet, isn't it? That everything Jesus does during his human lifetime tells us something about who God always was and always will be. Jesus reveals the eternal nature of God and here's the eternal nature of God in this story. God is able, capable, 
actively invites us out of the hells in which we live. God invites us out of alcohol abuse and drug addiction. God invites us out of the stigma of mental illness. Did you hear what it said? God does not invite us out of mental illness. God invites us out of the stigma of mental illness. God invites us out of those places that we've earned and have put upon us and says, you are not alone in those places. I am able to make new life and resurrection from you wherever you are. And of course, as followers of Jesus, that's our call. Our call is to be those people to our friends and families and our not friends and our not families. To say, wherever you go, I sure didn't think I could go there before, but I am able to find you in the places you don't want to be found. That's a curious thing about ascension, isn't it? That the ascension of Jesus isn't just some neat theological idea. It's a call and invitation to ministry for us to ascend from the hells in which we live and for us to harrow the gates in which other people find themselves confined and invite them out knowing that Jesus has ultimately broken the gates, we're there to remind people Jesus has broken the gates. <laughs> Can I guide you out? Will you come with me to a greater life? That's pretty difficult to do, I think. <laughs> and this is why I think there's this big dramatic difference between the Acts reading and the Luke reading. Did you notice in Luke, Jesus sort of rises up blessing the people and everybody's happy? And then in Luke, you hear the same story and the people are really scared. <laughs> it didn't take them long to go from being happy that they were blessed to terrified. And next week, when we come to the Pentecost reading, what do you know? The disciples are all gathered in a room with the doors locked so no one can come in and get them. They're scared. They went from being happy to being terrified in less than a week. And I think probably because the images of Jesus that they had become so accustomed to and so comfortable with on Ascension Day, they're gone. Jesus they're so used to him for three years, following this guy around and hanging on his every word, often getting it wrong. But he's there, sleeping in the same room with him, eating food that he distributes to them. Then he dies, and they don't get to see him. When he comes back, he looks different. And now on Ascension Day, he leaves completely. And they have to imagine that even though they don't see him anymore... He's still with them. This is the challenge we face every time we go to bury someone we love. 
The prayer book says it well. It says that in faith, life is not ended. It's changed. Of course, you know, as I do, that when somebody dies, it sure does feel like their life has ended, doesn't it? Especially when it's someone whose hand you've held for years, who you've woken up next to for years. It sure doesn't feel like change. It feels like gone. The disciples find themselves in that gone feeling. I suspect that if you have not been in the gone feeling yet, you will one day feel yourself stuck between gone and change. The difficult thing is to somehow imagine that that face that shone God's light and the love that you have spent your life wrapping your heart around, you know, particularly I think in marriage we spend our, our lifetime wrapping our our souls together so intricately. It's hard to know where mine ends and my spouse's begins. I don't know if you've had this experience. Could be children, could be parents or siblings. It's not unique to marriage. Hard to find where our soul ends and theirs begins because things have become so intertwined then grief, of course, is where we start to unravel that. Grief is where we start to discover where those boundaries and limits are. And here on Ascension Day, the disciples experience grief. They haven't just spent three years with this guy. They've spent three years investing all of their dreams and projections and wishes upon him. Notice in in Acts, they say, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Like, when are you going to kick Rome out? I mean, they still don't get it. And Jesus' answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe one day, but I don't know. Let's not think about that. Let's think about the more important things. And this day is one of those days, I think, where C.S. Lewis, sorry to talk to him about him so much, But in the book Mere Christianity, he uses this phrase that God is the great iconoclast. The iconoclast. The breaker of icons. The destroyer of images. That God looks at us and sees when we settle for one image of God and then systematically tries to break that image so that we can be open to something greater than what we've settled on. God doesn't do it to punish us but for our own good, so that we can expand our awareness and presence of God. Jesus leaves so that they, not only to finish the cycle of coming down and going up, but also to open the disciples' minds and hearts to something greater than the physical human being they'd settled on. Jesus leaves because God doesn't live in a temple or a tabernacle or an ark. God doesn't live just in heaven. God has occupied the earth. God has even deigned to occupy 
the hills of our reality and imagination and to invite us out. Jesus leaves so the disciples have to deal with that. You'll find out next week that when God leaves like that, when their images are gone, they find themselves out of breath. They need a second wind. (laughs) Pentecost is all about a second wind. But until then, I think we have this mystery before us. You know, since Easter, we have looked at this Paschal candle, which is hugely tall. You know, our children at the day school, they try to light candles, and this is one I do not ask them to light. It is extremely dangerous. (laughs) It is really tall. You can see children take one of these little tapers and stand on their tiptoes and just kind of hope it ignites. (laughs) Today is the day in which the visible light of Christ goes away. The disciples can't see him anymore. But understand really carefully, and this is again, this is the message we say at burials. The prayer book does this quite right. This is a message from Godly Play. I want you to watch in just a second. I'm not going to put this light out. I'm just going to change it. The light is not going to end, don't you see? It's going to change. And you're going to see it change if you look carefully. This is the same reason we swing incense. It's not really just about the smell, which some of you don't like. It's really so you can see where our prayers and our spirits are being called. That's up, of course. And this is the assurance that we have any time we bury somebody that we love, is that their life has not ended. It's been changed. It's been changed. And this is the assurance that God would give us in those moments of brokenness, fear, Isolation, those moments where we think life has ended are precisely the places where God would change us and ask us to help others be changed. Those moments of addiction and stigma and paralysis and ridicule and denigration are moments that God says, Life is not over there. There is an opportunity for you to rise from those hells, from those earths, and join my presence. May God give us the courage not just to believe that life has changed, but to join God in changing life. Amen.